Worship is not something we do. It is not primarily an activity, but it's a fundamental part of our identity. And it's the most natural thing in the world. Welcome to First and Foremost, a weekly broadcast of First Presbyterian Church in the heart of downtown Greenville. Senior Pastor Richard Gibbons invites you to join us as we study God's Word together and discover what is first and foremost in our lives. This morning, our scripture reading comes from the New Testament book of Revelation, right towards the end of your Bible. And we are reading from Revelation chapter 4 and reading the first nine verses. As many of you know, over the last few months, we've been spending our Sunday mornings in Revelation, and we come this morning to Revelation chapter 4, and you'll find it on page 1917-1917 of the Church Bible. So we begin chapter 4 at verse 1. After this, I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, a rainbow resembling an emerald encircled the throne surrounding the throne where 24 other were 24 other thrones and seated on them were 24 elders and they were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads and from the throne came flashes of lightning rumbles and peals of thunder before the throne seven lamps were blazing these are the seven spirits or the sevenfold spirit of God. And also before the throne there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center around the throne were four living creatures, and they were, and they were covered with eyes in front and back. The first living creature was like a lion, the second like an ox, the third was, had a face like a man, the fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under his wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is, and is to come. Amen. And we trust that God will bless to us this reading from His Holy Word. This past week, if you have been watching the news, you may have noticed the story that excited baseball fans across the nation. On Tuesday or Wednesday, a story appeared about a family who were cleaning out the home of a relative. As they were working their way through all the bits and pieces, lying on the floor at the back of one of the rooms was an old brown paper sack. And they were going to throw it in the trash, but then thought, maybe we should check. And when they opened it up, there were some photographs of the family, there were some invoices, some letters, and seven, post seven baseball cards 
lying face down with an elastic band around them. And the family had viewed a documentary some weeks back about the value and significance and worth of baseball cards, and they looked at them and thought, don't seem to be much, but let's try. So they photographed each of the cards and sent them off to a sports evaluator. And the president of the professional sports evaluators looked at the cards and said that he was, quite frankly, a little suspicious. Only 15 of these cards were known to be in existence. To find one would be questionable, but to find seven in pristine condition mm, seemed a little too much to ask or hope for. He sent them off to three other evaluators, and over the next ten days or so came a consensus of opinion. But the cards were, in fact, real. They examined the photograph on the front, which was Ty Cobb. On the back, it said, Ty Cobb, king of the smoking tobacco world. And they examined the photograph, they looked at the use of font, they looked at the patina or the color on each of the cards, and the consensus of opinion was, in fact, they were genuine and valuable, and they were coming in, if you were to sell them today, over a million dollars. Seven baseball cards. Now, the family, of course, as soon as they received the valuation and it was confirmed, got rather excited. As you can well imagine, it was the most precious thing they had, the most valuable thing they had. And it was when the value and significance of what they had dawned on them that they knew their lives were about to change. Now, this morning, as we come to the book of Revelation... Revelation changes its focus in chapter 4. In chapters 2 and 3, we spent the last couple of months looking at Jesus' words to seven churches in the area of Asia Minor. And last week, Jesus, in challenging the church at Laodicea, said to them this, that there had been a time when they were living and vibrant and thriving as a congregation but by the time AD 96 came and he was writing to them directly, they had become so much a part and parcel of the culture and society around them that in fact not only had they drifted in their faith, they were no longer distinctly holding to the gospel, but they had drifted and had become lukewarm. One of the temptations we find in looking at the book of Revelation is this. The temptation is to think it's all about the future. But in fact, the first three chapters were to the churches of the year 96 AD. But the main section of the book from chapter 4 to chapter 22 is very different from those opening two chapters. And when you come into chapter 4, John moves us to another level entirely in his writing. Because no longer is Jesus writing to the seven churches, but he is revealing to John what will ultimately be. He is giving him in chapter 4 a vision of reality like no other. And so in chapter 4, Revelation, we now come to an unveiling, a revealing Revelation is, as you know, falls into the category of apocalyptic writing, and apocalypse means revealing. 
And in chapter 4, John is about to receive a revelation that I don't think he could have honestly anticipated in a million years, because the value and significance of what he is about to encounter is unprecedented and takes him to a whole new level in his faith. And John is at a place so intimate in his devotion and prayer life with the risen and exalted Christ, everything else vanishes. And he sees Jesus himself calling him and inviting him into the dwelling place of God. And as he walks through that room in his mind's eye, he walks into that room in heaven, in his mind's eye, sitting there on the throne, is God himself. And the lights and the brightness is dazzling and overwhelming. And John is seeking to put into language that which is inexpressible incomprehensible, indescribable. And so he struggles for language and talks about it is like this and like that and like the next thing. And that word dominates much of Revelation. And we'll see it as we move on through this morning. So why does Jesus take them into chapter 4 in this manner? What is going on? Why doesn't he leave this till the end of the book? Having written to people who are in dire circumstances, facing significant challenges, family and friends arrested and persecuted, some losing their life. Why does he then give them a vision of the ultimate end of all of history? Why does he go there? Hold that question. We'll come back to it as we move forward. Now, during the first two chapters, as he's been writing to the seven churches, he's been doing two or three different things. And the first thing we noticed that came again and again as we studied those churches was this, that he is creating in their minds clarity. He's creating clarity and laying out for them a number of spiritual imperatives. And those imperatives are deliberately designed to move them forward in growing and maturing in their faith. So that's the first thing he's doing. And the second imperative he's been laying before these seven churches was this, that he was encouraging them to create a place, a church, where people had a sense of belonging, a place that was nurturing and nourishing and life-giving, a place where they would engage with the living God. That was the second thing he was doing for them. And several times we noticed that the faith bubbling up inside these congregations was moving them forward with an emphasis on becoming a people whose dreams were greater than their memories. So as we come into chapter 4, all of this continues, but he also does this. And please hold on to this phrase for the rest of our studies. He's providing for them a vision of reality. Let me say it again. He's providing for them a vision of reality. Now hold that thought. 
Because John is experiencing when he steps in to, through the door into the throne room of God, John discovers immediately intimacy and connectedness with the living God in a way he had not before. The vast majority of us, I would suggest probably all of us, have never found ourselves caught up in the kind of vision that John is laying out here. Because for us, in a 21st century setting, we are convinced that intimacy and connectedness are dependent upon having a smartphone. We are convinced that intimacy and connectedness is about texting and emails and Twitter and Google and Facebook. How many times in a day do you find yourself Googling, texting, responding to emails, friends' requests on Facebook? Over and over and over again, our entire culture and society teaches us that if we are to be of significance and value, if we have had to have an identity, we have to be Facebook, Twitter, and so on. But John is telling us the opposite. He is saying that real value and genuine significance, that identity and purpose and focus come from engagement with the living God. And that's what he's saying right here. That's what he's saying right here. Now as he goes in, he's describing for us the brilliance of the lights, the colors are deep and reds and yellows and greens and blues. He's overwhelmed by it. He then describes the elders sitting on 24 thrones dressed in white with a golden crown. He then describes four living creatures. And as soon as we read this passage, we are asking ourselves now, who are these elders? What has set them apart? Why have they been selected to gather there on thrones in the presence of the living God? Who are these people? Well, a multiplicity of volumes have been written to show exactly who they are. And I want to tell you this morning definitively what the answer is. We don't know. That's the answer. We simply don't know. We could spend the next hour speculating and working out and following one theory or another. Some have suggested that 12 are to represent the 12 tribes of Israel. They represent eternity past in God's old covenant. The other 12 represent the apostles and represent the New Testament and the new covenant. But the fact is we simply don't know. And that's why this series on Revelation, and when we come back to it next January, will still have the same title, Mystery and Majesty. Because there's much of Revelation we can't simply tie down into neat little boxes and dot every I and cross every T. We simply don't know. Likewise, there are four living creatures. One described like a lion. And please watch John's language in Revelation. Again and again he says, like a crystal sea, like a sea of glass, like a lion, like an ox, like a man, like an eagle. It doesn't mean they are those things, but they are like. 
And if you imagine the lion, strong, dominant, has a presence in any company, that's the kind of imagery that's going on. But John doesn't stop there. Because what John describes next is that these creatures with six wings, with eyes both on the inside and outside of their wings, both eyes on their face and on their back, means what? They are all seeing and all knowing. That's what's going on. And what does John do? He describes rather not just what they're like, but what they do. And John describes what they do for this reason. Because John, the great apostle, has been exposed to the supreme sovereign of heaven and earth. God, visible in his exalted, transcendent majesty. And John sees it and feels it and senses it. And here is God in divine essence and dominion. And John is overwhelmed by it. And no wonder he's overwhelmed by it. Because what does he say? He says this. He describes what they say. And each of the four living creatures had six wings and were covered with eyes all around, even under his wings. And day and night they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was, who is, and is to come. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Those are the words used in Isaiah chapter 6. And I think John had a very similar experience to Isaiah chapter 6. They recorded nowhere else in Scripture. Now please notice what John writes. As the angelic beings, seraphim and cherubim, bow in absolute wonder, love, and praise caught up in the transcendent majesty and unadulterated glory of God. They worship Him. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Now, John in writing doesn't have the luxury that we have when it comes to writing. John doesn't have word processing facilities. He can't underline to emphasize. He can't put in brackets. He can't use a highlighter. He doesn't put quotation marks. He doesn't use an exclamation mark to get the attention of his readers. So in order for his readers to grasp what's going on, he reflects the experience of the angelic host who say, Holy, holy, holy. Now, please understand this. It's not simply holy is the Lord God Almighty. Neither is it a mere holy, holy, but three times a super superlative for God in all his grace and wonder is there. And John is exposed to his eternity eternal love and his sovereign power. And no wonder it feels that heaven itself is shifting and shaking as lightning goes off and thunder peals. And the angelic host are caught up in wonder, love, and praise. 
So here's my question to you this morning. If John is setting a vision for reality, what would you give for such an experience? I would love to time travel. And one of the places I would go is forward to this, this vision of reality, how the end of the world will be, and to stand there just in the shadows watching. I wouldn't want to see anything or draw attention to myself, but I'd just like to stand there and watch the angelic host in worship of the living God. But I want to confess this. I would be scared stiff for such an experience. Scared stiff for such an experience. Because the last thing I want to be is in the presence of a holy, sovereign, almighty, transcendent in majesty and divine in essence. The last thing I want to do is be in his presence. Why? Because it would remind me of my own sin and my own betrayal and the times when I've walked away from him. And I would feel the sighs. And folks, that's what happens when we do business with the living God. Yes, there are days when he gets alongside us and puts his arm around us and comforts us and encourages us and strengthens us and enables us. Of course, there are days like that. There are days when we find ourselves weeping and he comes and brings forgiveness and renewal and strength. And those days are a must. But I suspect for so many of us, the other are so few that we find ourselves face down in utter adoration at his grace and his love and his transcendent glory. What would we give for such an experience? How the church across the world needs to see God in all of his wonder again. All of his wonder And that's why John puts it right here in chapter 4, because he finds himself in the presence of God Almighty. And why is that significant for the churches in Asia Minor, in Ephesus, in Smyrna, in Pergamum? And why is it significant for us today? Well, it's significant for this reason Because when you have gone through your third round of chemo, when you have lost a child and gone through a divorce that is so painful that your life is falling apart, you've gone through the death of a husband, a wife, a family member, your child didn't get into the school that you wanted, for months you'd prayed, prayed about a new house, and it's come to nothing. It's when you find yourself there, and then you open up His Word, and you find the Spirit drawing you in, 
and pleading with you passionately to come into His presence, and you understand once more who you are worshiping, the heart and mind and soul soar heavenwards, and you find yourself there in the presence of Him who is omnipotent, who is majestic, who is glorious, who is transcendent, and who is dwelling inside your heart and mind and soul, then everything else, all of the difficulties, all of the challenges, all of the pain, the disappointment, the brokenness, fades into the background and you are lost in wonder, love, and praise. Then you know intimacy. Then you know connectedness. And that's why Jesus gives to these churches, going through horrendous days, a vision of reality of what will be. And I imagine the morning that this book of Revelation was read to those churches. They went out rejoicing, thrilled, excited, electrified, because God Himself was on His throne, and all of history, eternity past and eternity to come, was within His sovereign control. And He knew exactly what He was doing. That's the kind of vision of reality that we need. That's significance. That's value. And the baseball cards and the things of this world become baubles and trinkets and meaningless. And if we have said over these weeks together that Christ has been bringing to us clarity and spiritual initiatives to be implemented, please understand this, that at the very heart of a living, growing, thriving church is worship. And please let me close with this. Worship is not something we do. It is not primarily an activity, but it's a fundamental part of our identity. And it's the most natural thing in the world to be able corporately on a Sunday morning to gather and say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. So this morning as we leave here, we will leave singing, worshiping, all hail the power of Jesus' name, where angels prostrate fall, bring forth the royal diadem, and crown him Lord of all. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this passage of Scripture that has taken us into the very throne room of God. Father, forgive us, please, for the 
days when we marginalize you, the days when we wander from you and minimize you. And Father, remind us again this morning, convict us by your Spirit and enable us and strengthen us, please, that we would say with one accord that we long to worship you for you are holy, holy, holy. Lord God Almighty. Amen. Here at First Presbyterian, we're delighted to welcome you to our Easter services. Details are available online at fpceaster.com. Please come and join us, and I look forward to welcoming you.